electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Tech Check. And what a week it was for tech. We're ending on a down note. The Nasdaq closing lower by a percent today. But the rest of the week, it was a one big rip higher, outperforming the Dow and the S&P 500, as it has been all year. Big tech, the XLK, smaller, more speculative stocks, software, semis, e-com, they all ended the week higher. And we're headed right into the next big catalyst. Next week, we will get earnings from Netflix and Tesla. Tech companies will start to reveal what the second quarter was like for business, what the outlook is for the rest of the year. We've got software budgets, consumer spending, and of course, AI. How much it actually contributed to the bottom line. Perhaps less hype, more dollars, we shall see. Right now, we are digging into Kathy Wood's flagship ARC Innovation ETF, also rebounding this year. AI mania, falling inflation, easing recession fears. That is all powering speculative tech. The ETF hit an 11-month high today. Take a look at that chart. Outperforming even mega caps like Microsoft, Alphabet, and Apple, fueled by top two holdings, Tesla and Coinbase, which have doubled this year or more. Most of ARC's other disruptive tech funds with a similar or even better performance, there's ARC W that targets next-generation internet. There's also ARC F focusing on fintech and blockchain, both of those rallying more than 60% this year. But, and this is a big one, that marquee ARC fund still hasn't come close to the highs of the pandemic. It was, of course, the poster child of the tech boom during that period, but it has cratered over the last couple of years. It was one of the worst performing equity funds of 22, dragged down by losses in Roku, Zoom, Shopify. Just a few days ago, what also sold nearly $12 million worth of Coinbase right as shares of the crypto exchange reached a yearly high. And, of course, missed out on that jaw-dropping rally in NVIDIA, which she exited entirely in early January in that flagship fund. Let's get an inside look. Joining us now is Kathy Wood herself, CEO of ARK Invest. Kathy, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start with NVIDIA. Walk us through that decision, that process, why you judged that name to be overvalued right as it was taking off. Yeah, so we uh, started our uh, research on artificial intelligence, actually when we were studying the possibility of autonomous vehicles uh, way back in 2014. Uh, NVIDIA at the time was $5. Uh, uh, that's uh, on the split basis, $5. Now it's closing in on $450. So we wrote it all the way up uh, until mid-300s, mid-to-high-300s in the flagship uh, sold it because we saw the inventory problem brewing. That was a good call. Got back in in the fourth quarter when it cratered. And then it just took off after chat GBT while all of our other stocks, many of them AI driven, I would say most of them actually, uh, were still very, very weak. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an example, Tesla, I mean, uh, uh, NVIDIA was at 25 times revenues, while Twilio, which we think is going to be a huge beneficiary of AI, uh, was at two times revenues. So we were making a valuation judgment call. Uh, we had done very well, you know, five to 350 to 400. And 
We also uh, kept it in our uh, narrower, more narrowly focused yep. uh, portfolios, uh, but cut, took profits there as well. Taking profits, sure. What makes Twilio sort of a better player to have in your portfolio or your ETF right now than an NVIDIA? Well, I think a lot of people understand uh, that NVIDIA is just an incredible play on AI and it is priced accordingly. I don't think many people know that Twilio, if you use Uber, then the communication around Uber uh, is powered by Twilio. So Twilio has uh, roughly a trillion consumer business interactions per year. Now, uh, what? who are going to be the winners in AI? Uh, it, it is going to be companies with uh, visionary managements, uh, good distribution, global in this case, and proprietary data. Twilio has data on business to consumer communications that no one else has. Uh, and we think the secret sauce and the real beneficiaries of AI are going to be those with uh, proprietary data. The biggest one being Tesla. More data on real world mm -hmm. uh, driving miles than all the other auto companies and tech companies focused on autonomous in the world. Right. When you compare a Tesla or a Twilio, though, Tesla is at a different scale. It's collecting much, much more data. As you said, what makes Twilio so disruptive? As you said, yes, it's acting as sort of intermediary for Uber drivers, let's say, and their customers, a number of other companies. But what makes it an artificial intelligence winner specifically? What is so disruptive? So it is able to take the data, let's use Twilio's data, on, on Uber. And if you'll notice, Uber has introduced many, many new services and advertising. And with, uh, with this data, it is able to target consumers, uh, basically sending them uh, data, advertising, offers to buy at this restaurant or get a delivery from that restaurant, uh, uh, probably in a much more targeted way than most uh, most uh, companies that are in between the consumer and businesses. I'm still, you know, I want to go back to NVIDIA, though, right? I, I, I see the proposition there, maybe, and perhaps investors do more clearly as well, judging by how much it has been up. Were you surprised by the monster quarter that NVIDIA put out in May when it wasn't just talking about artificial intelligence as something in the future, it's kind of we are with some of these other names, but it's actually going to book revenue this year related to this huge platform shift. So what makes you think sort of an NVIDIA at the time was overvalued when you have you know, Zoom video, for example, a call at, that it could reach half a trillion dollars. Um, so if, if, you, if you look at NVIDIA, it is one of the magnificent seven. Uh, yeah. It is an easy way to put money to work. And the excitement around ChatGBT was such that this was the obvious play. It has been the check the box AI company um, uh, for, for a while now. Uh, and rightly so, it has done an amazing job. However, whenever I hear the word shortage around anything, and you're hearing shortages around GPUs uh, for AI computing power, uh, I, uh, I step back and say, okay, there's probably double ordering. This was true of everything during COVID and it was a great call, uh, an inventory call during COVID. I think we're going to see the same thing here. But isn't its shortage of, you know, the AI chips that everyone wants, isn't that part of the bull case for NVIDIA? They can't produce enough because they're in such high demand. 
Yes, and what happens when you hear the word shortage? Uh, what do you do as a purchasing manager? Uh, you you have to have you have you're the purchasing manager. You better have the supply. And when you don't get it, you double order, you triple order, you quadruple mm. order. That happens routinely. And I'm not saying this is a cyclical comment. This is nothing about uh, Nvidia's secular potential. We think uh, it will face more competition than than many people uh, expect. Uh, we know AMD. We know uh, companies like Tesla. Tesla has. Uh, designed its own AI chip, Meta Platforms, own AI chip. So Google, same, own AI chip. So it doesn't have the market to itself like I think people uh, think. And, and, and it's priced as though it is the one beneficiary out there. When If right. you look at all of the stocks in our portfolio, the companies have proprietary data that no one else has. So, Kathy, is this as good as it gets for NVIDIA, or are you looking for an opportunity to pick, pick back up some shares? Sure. If it were to correct, it goes through these massive corrections around inventory uh, gluts and shortages. And uh, yes, we certainly would. But understand, it is a well-understood play on AI at 25 times revenue. Uh, Tesla, now probably at seven hmm. times revenue, is probably the biggest play out there in terms of the revenue potential. It's going after the autonomous uh, yeah. taxi platform market, which we think is going to be an eight to ten trillion dollar market globally uh, by 2030. So we're looking again for those data plays and and those with proprietary data. Mm -hmm. Nvidia is focused on hardware. Nvidia is focused on hardware. For every dollar of hardware. Uh, AI will pull through uh, probably $8 of software. So uh, again, uh, uh, NVIDIA, really important cornerstone stock has uh, from $5 to $450 done a lot of work. And now people understand it's out in the open. It's not the hidden gem that it was when we were looking at it as a PC gaming right. chip company and nothing. That's how people looked at it, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago. And then and as we a crypto were, play oh, and now an AI play. Exactly. Exactly. It's in through a number of cycles. Yeah. And Kathy, as you said, you were in early. If you are looking at companies that have proprietary data, and certainly you're not the only person who says so, right? A lot of folks tell me here in Silicon Valley that it's the gold in this platform shift, the data that is. Why wouldn't you look to the big tech companies? Who's got more data than Microsoft, Amazon, Google? Well, you know, I think uh, that they certainly have a lot of data, but I think uh, that there are some dif disruptive forces at work. Uh, take ChatGPT. I mean, that could harm Google mortally. You know, it's either the worst thing that's happened to Google or could be the best if it's if it's lighting a fire. But its advertising model is potentially at risk as uh, ChatGPT disintermediates search. Uh, Amazon, uh, ChatGPT could cause disintermediation in mm -hmm. e-commerce, you know, just taking you, if you ask uh, for a type of shoe, you say, I want the... I want it at the lowest cost, lowest shipping costs uh, directly uh, within the next day. Uh, there's, you know, your services evolving with chat GPT like that can disintermediate Amazon and just take mm -hmm. you to that site and order directly. So there's right. a little bit more disruption, I think, in the Magnificent Seven than many people understand. 
Right, and Google's searching and building out its answer to that. But ChatGPT, Kathy, has this partnership with Microsoft. Microsoft is just another mega cap that's getting all the benefit, and ChatGPT essentially needed the compute power. So again, it sort of all paths currently lead back to big tech, or is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Well, I just gave you two uh, two uh, disruptions that we think. Uh, but ChatGPT is part of Microsoft, right? Essentially. But, but if what are the risks with Microsoft? Again, price to perfection, right? Everybody knows this is a play. Uh, what what could go wrong? Well, um, there are political forces at work that are uh, focused on data privacy, and in Europe, uh, GDPR, the privacy standards there. Uh, are much tougher, and anyone doing business from the U.S. into U.S. into Europe is going to have to abide by them. And they are starting to zoom in on AI and privacy, and that could throw a wrench into some of these big mega cap plays because they're the targets. Right. Although we haven't seen investors react to that yet. Kathy, I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about ARC more broadly. Investors stuck with you during losses in 2021 and 2022. This year, however, you're seeing outflows even as you're rebounding. What does that signal to you? So um, we our asset retention has been spectacular. I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, asset retention through 21 and 22. Uh, we are up more than 50%, some of our funds 60% plus. Uh, so there would be natural profit taking, but there's something else that has happened over the last year. Our stock developed what, what traders would call a very nice base, a trading range. And I think we began to see opportunistic trading uh, in the mid 30s to the mid 40s. And it seemed to top out regularly in the mid 40s. Well, we've just broken through that. Uh, and so recently, this week, our flows picked up very nicely because there are traders out there who are looking at uh, ARC stock and says, wow, if it breaks out of this nice long base, it could have a very powerful move here. And uh, and as you can see from the chart, we are still down. If you look, if you compare ARKK to the, the NASDAQ 100, you'll see the NASDAQs you know, getting close to its all-time highs, and ARKK, which is full of innovation, is much closer to its lows. So I do think we're beginning to see uh, investors shift from the NASDAQ 100 or NASDAQ, take, take maybe losses or gains there, and into uh, our innovation fund because I think the values when it comes to innovation are in our fund. Where is that value, Kathy? Let's maybe look at that chart on a longer-term basis. Let's say since ARC's inception in 2014, and I know you invest in disruptive business models, so you take a longer-term view. But over that time, ARC has underperformed not just the NASDAQ, but the S&P 500. How should investors view your proposition, your value proposition to them? Well, I, th I think they should put into context what has happened in the last two years. Uh, interest rates... The Fed jacked interest rates up 21-fold. Any long-duration asset, and in the world of equities, innovation is going to be the longest duration, all long-duration assets were slaughtered last year. 
the bond market. Now, that's long duration as well, but it's usually a flight to safety vehicle. The bond market last year had its worst year since the sometime in the 1700s. Uh, if that was going to happen to bonds, which are usually flight to safety, just because they were long duration, that was going to happen to ARC in spades, and it did. Now, where are we? The market is starting to look to the other side of the interest rate increase, and they're starting to look at inflation, which is crumbling. Inflation is crumbling. I know that uh, uh, a lot of people use the word sticky, but you look at the leading and core. That you look at the leading indicators of inflation, they are coming down rapidly. And we do believe we're going to see deflation, uh, which we're already seeing it at many places, but even right. in the broader based indices and the Fed will have to adjust and we'll be on the other side of the horror show we just went, in, went through. Kathy, you've been talking about deflation for a long time, though. Um, and some would argue many, though, missed, including the Fed itself the rise in inflation and how sticky it has been. So what makes you think now is any different? Why should investors believe you this time when sort of you, but many others as well, have been wrong about it? I, I don't think we've been wrong about it. When we were in COVID, we were, the, we were talking about inventory shortages that would cause supply chain problems and the inflation that would come from that. Sure, we didn't know about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but I think when history is the judge, and it will be, that uh, history will judge the inflation we went through as a mass, as a, a, the result of a massive supply shock to the system. Mm -hmm. And they will look at the comparison, not to the 70s, which I know Larry Summers and Mohammed Elarian and others have used that analogy. We use the 19 teens. We went through a pandemic back then, the Spanish flu. We went through a war, World War I. We were on the gold standard, so money supply had to fall uh, as inflation went up. Inflation mm -hmm. went to 24, 24% June of 1920, dropped to minus 15 in June of 1921, and we moved into the roaring 20s. Why? Massive innovation, telephone, electricity, automobile. This period is much more like that period than like the 70s. And right. again, history is the judge. It will look at the inflation chart, which went like this and is going like this now. And right. well, uh, it will seem like it happened in a flash, even though going through it feels uh, like we're in slow motion. OK, we'll see. Kathy, one last quick question. Um, I was on threads, as many people these days are. And I was looking up quickly. You have an account, so does ARK Invest, but you haven't threaded anything yet, if that's the right terminology. Do you plan to use that? And what do you think its proposition is over Twitter, if any? So I won't be using it, but our marketing team, I'm sure, will be using it. Uh, and Why not I, you? I think because uh, the more productive social network for us at ARK is Twitter. Uh, I mean, the knowledge workers, the innovators we want to talk to are on Twitter and we've established relationships with them. Uh, and so uh, I, I can't imagine switching from Twitter. That doesn't mean threads will be a failure. It's just going to be something right. different. It's not going to be what Twitter is, certainly not to us. Kathy, I'm going to sneak one quick one last in. Any regrets over the last few years, a trade that you missed or made that you regret perhaps? Well, um, 
you know, I, I think, and many people will say, oh, you must have regretted missing NVIDIA as you did Deirdre up front. <laughs> Actually not. Actually not. You know what we moved into? More Tesla, more Coinbase. Those are up as much as NVIDIA. So we're. I'm a portfolio manager. We're managing a portfolio. And when we see one valuation skyrocket and other valuations that, sh that should be responding to the same thing, artificial intelligence getting crushed, uh, we know what to do with that. Uh, so I don't regret it. Uh, what I what I uh, wish that the media had focused on is how loud we were about NVIDIA starting yeah. nearly 10 years ago in 2014. We said NVIDIA, NVIDIA, every time we came on your show, NVIDIA. When it moved into- That's fair. Us, you you that's wrote it all the way up. Yes. Fair point. And a good place to end on. Uh, Kathy Woods, as always, great to have you on. Thank you. And we'll talk Thank to you soon. Have a good Thank weekend. You. you too. Coming up, Hollywood on strike. Actors joining the writers on the picket line. A complete shutdown of film and TV productions underway. No resolution in sight. Shares of Warner Brothers, Discovery, Disney and Netflix. They're all in the red today. We will break down the impact. We're just getting started on the CNBC special Taking Stock. Tonight, are you not entertained? Will Hollywood labor strife leave profits on the cutting room floor? Plus, don't call it a comeback? Back at its IPO price, can Uber leave Lyft in its rear view? And start the up or don't? How the debt capital of Venture City has become Restopolis. Keep it here on Tech Check. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. President Biden throwing his support behind the Screen Actors Guild's decision to strike just a few months after more than 11,000 film and television writers went on strike. Actors have joined the stoppage in the first tandem strike since 1960, and that effectively grinds all Hollywood production to a halt. Comes amid a bunch of changes in the filmmaking industry as studios have shifted capital to streaming and restructured, all while navigating a post-COVID recovery Disney CEO Bob Iger even says that the old ways of doing business are no longer sustainable. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So they're not being realistic? Uh, no, they're not. 
some of the key demands from the Writers Guild critique the so-called mini rooms that have become popular with streaming companies and look to set standards for streaming residuals. AI also a key factor in both negotiations. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers saying it offered the Actors Union a quote groundbreaking AI proposal that quote protects performers' digital likenesses. However. SAG's chief negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, rebutting that the proposal would have compensated background actors for just one day of work in exchange for the rights to their likeness, quote, for the rest of eternity with no compensation. All of this coming amid a broader wave of labor strikes and negotiations across North America. Disruptions over here on the West Coast ports to Starbucks workers striking over the use of pride decor. And we are awaiting the upcoming decision on the Teamsters, which, according to a labor think tank, could be the costliest strike to the U.S. in decade. That contract between the Teamsters and UPS expires on July 31st. So a lot of action in labor movements. Coming up, we are taking a look at a stock that has been accelerating this year, up more than 80% year to date. So what is it? What's behind that move? We're taking a ride next. You're watching Tech Check live from CNBC's One Market. We're right back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. That stock that we showed you before the break, it went right up like that. It's Uber. The ride-sharing giant reaching $45 a share earlier today, matching its IPO price finally from back in 2019. The move back to the milestone is due in part to the 81% gain for Uber year-to-date. So what is behind its rise? Can it keep going from here? Let's bring in the former chief business officer at Uber, Emil Michael, for more. Emil, Thank you for joining us. You were part of Uber 1.0, and you've been pretty critical of its CEO, Dara Khosra Shahi. You're changing your tune now. You're, you're actually bullish all of a sudden, right? I am bullish. I, the, the major thing that's happened that's really driven the stock price action this year, in my opinion, is the demise of Lyft as a really formidable competitor. Um, sort of like managing the decline of the Soviet Union, that sort of happened. And the rideshare wars, in my view, in the U.S. are over, and Uber won. And that's really contributing to the potential for this company and this stock. What does winning mean? Um, do we see this company continue to move higher? When you were there, Uber was doing some other things. You had your fingers in autonomous driving, scooters, um, food delivery, which it's still doing. But does Uber have more room to go now? And is ride sharing as disruptive as you know you once thought it would be? Um, well, I didn't have nothing to do with the scooter thing, but uh, I, did, I was proud of what we did with Uber Eats. And even though Uber Eats is number two in the U.S., um, that market's still growing really fast. But back to the ride share question, um, the, the way the reason Rideshare will continue, I think, to drive the stock price higher is that there's a network effect to it. The more drivers uh, you have on the road, the more riders uh, can can avail themselves of Uber services. The shorter the wait times, the lower the price the company can offer. And that flywheel 
means that they're going to keep growing market share in most cities in the U.S., if not the world. And that engine uh, is pretty pa uh, pa powerful and profitable um, for this company. So I see it going higher, and I'm a holder right now. Under Uber 1.0, we saw Uber go into many different markets and burn a lot of cash in some of those markets over the years. But under Dara Khosrow Shahi's leadership, it sort of retreated. What happens now? Do you think that now that they're generating cash, getting to profitability, they go back out? I mean, I think that actually there's still further cutting to do. I think the grocery business they made a billion and billion five for this company called Corner Shop. I just don't think it's going to be competitive against Instacart. I think the company still is, is bloated at 35,000 employees. I actually think that they can make more profits by doing less than they're doing today. So it's sort of a reversal from the zero interest rate environment where it was free to invest in everything, including hmm. autonomous vehicles. And now it's back to the future, which the core business works. Food delivery works, so like, make sure you're doubling right. down on those and cut out the extraneous and get get a year, uh, go get to profitability that five billion dollar target that Tara had a year earlier. How about that? That'll drive the right. stock. So Uber and some of the other gig economies were built during that area of low interest rates and hyper growth or blitz scaling, right? And I think this is interesting. You say that. Lyft's demise means that that strategy actually worked, and you can see that across other sectors. Yes, for sure. And, and there's been a lot of critics of, uh, of hyper growth uh, because of the, the amount of money that was spent growing during those times. The reality is, though, without that growth, Uber wouldn't have been in 100 countries and doing food delivery in 70 countries. They'd be doing what Lyft did, which is not take advantage of that environment, focusing on one product in one market uh, with no durability. So I think that worked. The whole idea of blitzscaling worked for Airbnb. It worked for Uber, um, and I think you're going to see it work in the crypto space. I think Coinbase is going to come out a big winner relative to all the other exchanges, especially given what's happening to Binance now. So I think you're going to see that separation between one and two continue throughout hmm. tech. That's fascinating because I think, you know, over the last few years, folks have been wondering what was all that money for. But you start to see some of them reach a certain level of profitability. Um, Emil, last question for you. What happens to Lyft from here? I think it becomes what I call an orphaned company. Um, it doesn't have a natural acquirer, General Motors or Waymo, the Waymo part of Google or Tesla, um, just not an interesting business for them at all. And so then you have to, if I were the CEO, I would sort of be retreating to the markets where I have decent market share, particularly on the West Coast. Let's say they're 30, 40% market share in San Francisco, LA, Seattle. Try to get those to 50%, so then you get those economies of scale and that flywheel I was talking about, and get out of the other markets and focus and just be a smaller, profitable company. Wow. So a smaller regional player after raising $10 billion in capital as a private company and then going public. Uh, what a change of fortunes. What a roller coaster ride it's been for the ride-sharing industry. Emil Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you again soon. Thank you, Deirdre. Bye-bye. Coming up, thanks to higher rates and the collapse of SVB, venture debt is drying up, leaving startups strapped for funding. We'll discuss that next. Don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on the special edition of Tech Check. Coming up, Ace Venture, Debt Detective. Why private equity has startups thirsting for growth. Plus, Bank Shop, the edge that old school financials have over fintech's disruptors. And... The gig economy was so last week. 
The creator economy is the straw stirring this drink. That and more when Tech Check returns. Venture capital loans all but evaporating in Silicon Valley after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. What once was a cheap form of capital, no longer an option for a bulk of startups, leaving many strapped for funding. Kate Rooney, there are few ways to fund a company. Debt is a particularly, actually, it's all tough right now. It's it's tough, but it's been so popular in the last decade or so. Indeed, this drought in venture debt really has big uh, implications for the next generation of young companies and founders. So this type of loan played a key role in helping startups grow pretty fast in the past decade or so. Venture debt allows funders, excuse me, founders to get access to capital without giving up more ownership in their company so it doesn't dilute existing shareholders. This is especially useful for those more cash-intensive businesses. So think of a robotics company, for example, or biotech. Maybe the most important factor here, debt was cheap. Near zero interest rates for more than a decade made this really a no-brainer for a lot of founders. That changed drastically when the Fed started hiking interest rates, making it more expensive to service those loans. Founders can't as easily swing some of the bigger interest payments right now. We also had the collapse of the biggest lender in the space, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. We also had First Republic. All of this is now starting to show up in the numbers. So PitchBook this week reporting the value of venture debt down 67% year-over-year. Early-stage lending was hit the hardest by far, and overall deal volume was down about 40%. Investors say this lack of debt is separating the wheat from the chaff, and businesses that don't conserve cash simply won't make it. I think the next two years are going to be really, really tough, and we are going to see a lot more failures. Those companies that have not cut back on their burn and that haven't been able to show progress are going to find a tough time staying alive. Ryan Gilbert, that you just heard from, also telling me that quality, profitable startups are still going to have these options. They still might get debt, and they'll get that VC funding that's pretty rare right now. Then you've also got J.P. Morgan looking to fill the void. The banking giant hired dozens of bankers this week to beef up its startup lending business and really step into where Silicon Valley Bank was. But it's not going to be a Silicon Valley Bank, right? Because Silicon Valley Bank was very incentivized to structure debt in a certain way, and sometimes it would give terms for a piece of the company or warrant, right, or an option. So J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, some of the other big, you know, firms and banks don't want to do it in the same way. They care about one thing, and that's making their money back in interest. A lot of it serve them. Yeah, and the non-bank lenders have gotten into the space, too. You're right. They don't have the same incentive that Silicon Valley Bank had. The other thing I'm hearing from VCs out here is the relationships aren't the same. So the big thing is you could call up your right. banker at SVB and say, that's where you kept your cash. That's where you had, you know, essentially your checking account. You could call them for a loan. The, the relationships, mortgage, right? Lots of folks so, here. Exactly. Had mortgages <laughs> with SVB. That was a big thing. Now those guys are out working at different banks and the relationship business has just changed. So someone likened it to an earthquake. They're sort of getting out of the rubble. It's really still not not fixed yet. And I heard death spiral. Yeah. You heard earthquake. I heard death spiral. You do this, and then you're just struggling to sort of earn cash. Yeah. And, and also, that's a problem as well. A lot of the big lenders, they want cash-generating businesses or exactly. already profitable businesses. But we know, being here in the Valley, that... The terms have changed a, a little bit, too. So if you're going to get venture debt, it's still accessible, for, especially for profitable businesses. Yeah. You still have access to that. But the terms are just a lot stricter. And if you're going to a more established bank, you're exactly right. They're not going to have that same incentive to want to do maybe a convertible debt where you, you give a loan and then it turns into a slice of a startup. That's not as exciting for a big bank right. as it is right. for Silicon Valley Bank. And it really you're just feeling the void. It feels like people still really haven't gotten over 
the, the loss of, of that, those key relationships and begging partners. Maybe with one exception, if you're generative AI adjacent, <laughs> then, yeah. then there's money to be found, at least I'm exactly. hearing. Exactly. So. It, it's like the blockchain <laughs> phenomenon. You just right. put AI in your name and there you, you go. get debt, Kevin, you can get VC funding, you can get whatever you want. Get, exactly. Whatever funding <laughs> you want. Uh, Kate Rooney, thank you very much for Thanks that. You. Coming up, big banks kicked off earnings season with good enough results, but with fintech showing signs of life, could it be time to circle back to that side of the tech trade? That's up next. Welcome back. As big banks kick off earnings season, one thing so far is clear, the bigger the better. Or as Wells Fargo put it in a note this morning, Goliath is really, really winning. Access to cheap deposits swelled for big banks in the wake of Silicon Valley's bank's collapse earlier this year. That and higher interest rates, that has led to higher net interest income at J.P. Morgan, the largest U.S. bank by assets. And despite offering lackluster rates on savings accounts that are often near zero percent, they have turned out to be extremely sticky. That is, customers are parking money in the perceived safety of large banks, despite earning a mere fraction of the interest they might get from more competitive accounts at fintechs like SoFi, which offers a 4.4% annual percentage yield. Put another way, $100,000 in a standard Chase savings account over 12 months returns just $10. At SoFi, the return would be $4,400. So what's the tech angle here? Well, fintechs, financial services, tech companies, they have rebounded this year. The Finex ETF is up more than 20 percent, but it still trails the biggest of big banks, J.P. Morgan, by a wide, wide margin over the last 12 months. So does it really pay to be a disruptive fintech or will traditional bank deposits remain sticky as interest rates remain at elevated levels? Let's ask Eugene Samuni, research analyst at SVB Moffitt Nathanson. Eugene, thank you so much for being with us. So what do you say? I mean, were you expecting Deposits to be this sticky? Of course. Uh, well, thank you, Dieter. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great. Um, uh, I would say we have expected deposits to be this sticky. Um, the de- deposits is, a, is an extremely important part of, uh, of the business model of the financial institution, whether it's a traditional financial institution or a fintech. And uh, you put a SoFi uh, API on the screen there. SoFi's deposits now cross $10 billion, and that's a pretty impressive number, uh, and they really did it over the past year. And it's one of the reasons we think SoFi and other fintechs that are actually able to have access to deposits are better positioned to win over the longer term than those that are not. What makes you think they're better in the longer term? I mean, yes, they've been increasing those deposit numbers, but the fact is that, you know, Chase Savings Account offers 0.01% APY. Why are customers staying? I mean, a lot of folks haven't lived through, at least in the younger generation, haven't lived through this era of higher interest rates. Maybe they don't know, but isn't it becoming more clear with the SOFIs, with the Apple Savings Account? Do you expect that to shift? And it's worse for the profit margins, right? That's what this is all about in the end. Those NIIs from the banks, the ones that we saw this morning, pretty good. Yes, that's true. It's nice to have your cost at a, at a cost, cost at a low level. Uh, yeah, look, I think you have a couple of questions here. One, uh, you know, will fintechs be able to attract deposits from the likes of uh, Chase, JP Morgan? Uh, our short answer is we believe that the answer is yes, right, from the uh, 95, 99% of deposits that are now with traditional banks. 
it might not be from Chase, which is maybe best in class, a traditional bank, but it might be from smaller regional banks, credit unions, right. who just don't have those capabilities. That's where we think the you know the inflows to the fintechs uh, fintechs are coming from. In terms of the profit margin, just to answer that quickly, yes, it's nice to have your low costs low, <laughs> but it's also really nice to have your prices high. Uh, and it's all about the difference, right? So when you look exactly. at SoFi, you look at what are they doing with that money? They're lending it in personal loans, mm. just et cetera. And they're earning actually quite a nice NII on that yeah. as well. Good point. Uh, Eugene Samuni, thanks for being with us. Your insights. Of course. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Coming up, Twitter reportedly paying creators tens of thousands of dollars amid intensifying competition with Meta. What that means for the creator economy, that's next. Welcome back. The juiciest, most drama-filled story in tech. That continues to be what else threads and Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg versus Elon Musk. Last night, Twitter started rolling out its direct payment to users through revenue share. Some of the biggest accounts on the platform posted receipts of thousands of dollars that had been sent to them. What Elon Musk claims is a new program to share the ad revenue that comes from the advertising that gets placed in the replies to your tweets. That's not a new model by any means. YouTube has an extremely durable and popular program where they share ad revenue with creators. Interestingly, though, it has never been something that Facebook or Meta has been able to make work on a large scale despite trying to appeal to creators. Multiple reports that usage of threads, Zuckerberg's Twitter clone, has fallen back down to earth after a huge buzzy launch. It's seen steep drops in daily active users and engagement, that's time spent on the app, since last weekend, according to data from both Sensor Tower and Similar Web. So where do we go from here? What does it mean for these companies? Joining us now is Kyla Scanlon. She rose to fame on TikTok and Twitter as a financial influencer and content creator. Kyla, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. What is your platform of choice and why? Oh, man, I don't know. There's so many out there now. I would say TikTok <laughs> is where you really get an interesting audience. Instagram Reels is really exciting. And then, of course, YouTube really figured out the monetization model. So I'd say those are my top three at the moment for sure. OK, so who pays best? Well, I would say YouTube has the monetization model figured out the most. I think what Twitter is doing is interesting, but with Twitter, it's sort of it's inciting rage, essentially, because you want people to reply to your tweets. So I'm not sure if it's the best model for society or if it'll pay users what they want to be paid. Um, but YouTube definitely has figured it out in terms of ad revenue and, and sharing that with creators. Right. So they all have sort of their different advantages. And sometimes you give up the monetization for more creative tools. Is that right? With like a TikTok. Are you using threads? Yeah, I'm on there. I mean, you have to be everywhere, right? Like if there's a new platform, you have to go at least sniff around and check it out. I think threads had some legs for a few days, but it's almost too many options at this point. You have threads, right. you have Twitter, you have Blue Sky. Like it's just overwhelming, I think, for most users. And they just want to you know, get the news essentially and like laugh at some memes. And it's becoming increasingly complicated to do that. And you focus on financial analysis, which I think is fascinating. How is it different what you're doing on social media than say what we're doing right now in a live broadcast? Oh, I mean, I think that I just try to talk about the news every day, I try to explain to people what's going on. So today's video is about consumer sentiment as well as real wages. Um, so just walking people through economic data, mostly depending on what came out that day and what came out that week. Um, so it's a little bit different than what we're doing right now, which is more, I guess, like real-time analysis. Yeah. 
Right. I'll ask you about earning next week's earnings in a second. That's what we do here on CNBC. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious, you know, obviously there's a younger audience on TikTok and even Instagram reels. What kinds of topics are they interested? How do you do it differently or how do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that people are mostly just interested in learning about the economy. I think oftentimes we don't give people enough credit for the economic interests that they do have. So I found that people are really interested in the labor market. Like there's a lot of strikes going on right now and people want to know what that means for them. They want to know why real wages have been stagnant. They want to know what earnings are going to do and what stocks are going to go up. Um, but they're also super interested in what the Federal Reserve is doing because that impacts their day-to-day -day lives in a really meaningful way. So I think it's just the broad swath of the economy is people just want to learn about it. And that's what I try to do with my content across all the different platforms that are out there. <laughs> right. And, and you've been using Twitter for a long time. Um, how do you judge sort of the engagement over the last year or so that Elon Musk has owned the company? Yeah, Twitter is my favorite platform just because you have so many amazing people sharing. Even though you just called things. it kind of toxic, you said it has all these things, but it's still your favorite. Yeah. Yeah, I think that what you get there is really special. It's one of the only text-based platforms that has really succeeded. I think it's become toxic, you know, recently just because of the engagement model that has been put forward and how blue checks kind of work. So you can pay for a blue check and then you'll be higher up in the response part of a tweet. So if you're responding to a tweet, your blue check will go a little bit higher than people without blue checks. Um, so I'd say that's been sort of disappointing and it's made the platform a little bit harder to right. use. Yeah, but Twitter is interesting because they can't seem to pay their bills, but somehow they're going to pay creators. So I, I'm just a little bit worried about that. That's a great point. Too. Yeah, yeah they, I suppose they have to keep engagement up. You know, I've been trying to get into threads, but I've, I, I know what you're saying in that Twitter is sort of a special place. It's hard to replicate, um, but we'll yeah. see. Early days. Uh, Kyla, thanks so much for being with us today. Kyla Stanley. Let's get a quick look at the markets before we go. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ, they all ended the week firmly in the green, given a boost after today's solid bank earnings. Take a look at the biggest gainers in the NASDAQ 100 this week. Airbnb higher after an analyst price target hike, while Activision Blizzard also up 9% after the positive news from its proposed merger with Microsoft. That one's been a roller coaster. Meanwhile, some of this week's biggest laggards on the NASDAQ 100, there's Lucid Group, far and away the worst performer. Look at that, down nearly 9%, uh, sinking as the company announced its deliveries are taking a hit from Tesla's price war. Let's take a look as well at next week, a busy week ahead. Finally, we get tech earnings. The bank kicked it off this week. Next week, we have Netflix and Tesla. Netflix will be an interesting one given the strike, given the fact that it's had a good year, but is it going to be talking about artificial intelligence like some of the other large cap techs? Look at you've got a full roster here and then the following few weeks we'll get plenty of more tech. Um, we'll look at the state of enterprise spending um, outlooks. And you know what's going to be really interesting this quarter is that the Magnificent Seven, especially names like Microsoft and Google, have been on this tear on the promise of generative AI. But as NVIDIA showed us in its latest quarter, that was the previous earnings season, you got to put dollars and cents behind it. So investors, they may be looking for actual revenue growth outlooks versus just talking. It felt like last earnings season, you just had to sprinkle AI a bunch of times into your earnings call. We'll see what happens this time. That does it for Tech Check. Last Call with Dom Chu starts right now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 